You may be seated. Took education in college, you probably heard of him and probably heard of his theory. And basically, his research came up with this idea that uh, one of the best ways to teach is through experience when mostly in the classroom, it's more auditory. And let's be honest, it's pretty much that way everywhere. It's auditory here, a little bit of visual, not a whole lot of experiential learning, right? We don't have anything that you like make at your table or take some clay and develop something. That's what we're talking like that, that tactical kind of learners across the board. And we said like, uh, what kind of groups do we have there? And he kind of broke them down to three groups, which is auditory, visual, and then experiential or also called kinesthetic learners. Uh, the kinesthetic learners are the ones who have to be active and doing to actually learn it. They don't learn very well auditorily. They get distracted. They kind of start thinking in other directions, and they can't hear what's being said anymore. Their attention spans are not very long. Um, they learn okay with visual, but the same thing kind of takes place there. They watch something for a little bit, and then they think about something else. But when they're active in it, they can keep their focus, and they can learn through it. Now, there are three different learners. But one thing that he found was also fascinating was, although auditory learners um, function very well in auditory learning, kinesthetic learners could not. But the opposite was not true. People who learned very well auditorily also learned very well kinesthetically. And the visuals did the same. So what he determined from this was that kinesthetic learning or active learning, experiential learning is actually the best way to teach because you actually get more people involved in the learning process and they usually remember more because there's something connected to it. There's an experience connected to whatever it is that they're learning and they tend to retain that more. Now, I bring all that up to not fight for any kind of changes in your school system or anything like that, but just to point out that isn't it amazing that as early as the book of Exodus, God is already using experiential learning. It may have taken us thousands and thousands of years to figure it out, but God had it in the very beginning. Matter of fact, when you go to Leviticus 23, all seven feasts of the Lord are participatory. They're experiential learning. It's something they do. It's a meal that they eat. It's something they participate in, but it has this connection. It has a connection to their own story. It has a connection to a historical story, and it has a connection to a future story or a promise maybe that God has given. And so this is one of the reasons that God implemented these things. And he tells them, I want you to do this every single year. I want you to revisit these stories. I want you to revisit this learning process. And I want you to engage yourself in these things. So God is constantly creating those experiences that we can learn from. We learn about who he is, who we are, what his promises are, and kind of where our life is going. So that is, in an essence, experiential learning theory. And that is really what God did with the Passover. You think about how they experienced uh, God's deliverance through all the plagues in Egypt, how they were experiencing what God was doing both in delivering them and setting them free and putting them on a path to not only worship him but to serve him. That's really what unleavened bread is about. Last week, we saw that intentionality as we looked at unleavened bread and, and we also looked at the intentionality of the Passover lamb. We talked about the similarities between what that was pointing 
towards what we see in Jesus, Jesus being the firstborn, Jesus being perfect, Jesus, just as they told him to watch this lamb for four days, Jesus was watched and questioned for four days on lamb selection days, the day Jesus walks into Jerusalem on Passover day when the Passover lamb is to be killed, Jesus died on the cross, whenever unleavened bread begins, the day Jesus is put into the grave, and of course, if you continue on that, you find out the Feast of First Fruits is the day Jesus rose from the dead. So everything in Jesus's life happened completely on this pattern that God sets forth as early as the book of Exodus. So this is important. It's important for us to understand and embrace because just because we are Americans and Christians far removed from this culture doesn't mean these aren't our stories and these aren't our promises. They are. We are grafted into this. This is a much our history and culture that we need to embrace um, as anyone else. So I want to challenge you with that as we go through this. Now, Part of the reason that God calls his people to do this every year is because they are forgetful people. Anybody else here a forgetful person? Can I get an amen? Yes. Lots of you are honest about it today. I love that. The honesty in here. I am a very forgetful person. I'm not saying that as an illustration. You can ask anybody who works with me or lives with me. They will tell you he is a very forgetful person. Um, matter of fact, I'm not even allowed to make appointments for myself anymore because this, no joke, this was years ago, but I literally had a day where I had three lunch appointments show up at the same time because I made all three of them at different times, made all three of them, told them all to show up on the same day, and they did. So <clears throat> some of that responsibility has been taken away from me because I do forget things. Now, I will also tell you that I have a pattern of forgetfulness, and I'm probably the king of forgetting things. Um, because I literally one day, this was probably about five years ago, um, got out into my car to drive to work. When I sat down in the car and started it, I thought, oh, I got to go get that thing from inside because I, I have to take that to work today. Got out of my car, walked into the house, walked into my room, and it's not very big, it's not a very far walk, walked into my closet and looked and thought, what did I come in here for? And as I defeatedly walked back to my car, because I stood there for 10 minutes trying to figure out what it was I came in there for, completely forgot about it, I went back to my car and started backing out and driving. I said, you know what? I forgot what I forgot. That's really bad when you forgot what you forgot. And that's kind of my life right there. I, I jokingly, not to make fun of it, but I jokingly tell my wife that if I ever slide into dementia, she'll never know. Because <laughs> it's just like, I, it's like it's, the patterns are already there. So uh, I don't know if any of y'all can relate to that, but I forget things. And because of that, I have to be intentional about remembering um, I am the king of spending money on whatever new day planner is out there, and none of them have ever worked for me. I'll just tell you that. But I, I'm still a sucker for, hey, this will work for you. And I'm like, I'll try it. I'll do anything to be more disciplined, to remember things. How many of you um, have to challenge yourself to remember things? Maybe you have to write things down, or you use your calendar a lot, or you put the alerts on there that tells you, hey, you need to leave right now if you're going to make it to this appointment. We have all kinds of things like that now with technology that can help us with remembering 
remembering these things. But what do you do with uh, school? What, what about the subjects that you didn't really like, but you still have to remember it? You probably learned little mechanisms of remembering things because they were hard to remember. Maybe you created acronyms or you created some silly song or you created some kind of the, the word um, castles or whatever they call that from creating your like really weird pictures in your head. It helps you to remember things. I don't know if you're all familiar with what I'm talking about, but there's all these different ways we have of remembering things that are hard to remember. And I think we do that because things that are easy to remember, um, we kind of don't really have to work at those at all, do we? I mean, we know our kids are like that. You know, you tell your kids, hey, if you eat all your dinner, we'll go to Dairy Queen. I mean, as soon as they eat that, you're Dairy Queen. You told us Dairy Queen. You said right then and we we're going to go there and this is what we were going to get. They remember every detail where you were standing, exactly what your words were. But then you're like, why didn't you clean up your room? You didn't tell me to clean up your room. Well, when did you tell me that? I don't know. I would have done it if you told me that. They don't remember those things, right? They don't remember what they want to remember. They remember the things that they want to. And, you know, ultimately, we don't grow out of that. Uh, the older we get, we have to be very disciplined to remember things that are important to us. So forgetting is not only a problem for us in the physical realm. What this teaches us today is that this is also a problem for us in the spiritual realm. So what is true physically is true spiritually as well. I like how one author put it. He said, the Christian life is a combination of amnesia and deja vu. He says, he kind of summarizes it this way. I know I've forgotten this before. <laughs> Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like God's walked you through this process in your life and you learned something from it? only to have to learn it again two or three years later. Maybe it's that relationship and it kind of went sour and you're like, man, I've learned something from this. And then you find yourself like a year later in the same situation in a different relationship, but the similarities and circumstances are almost the same. And you're like, why did I not learn from this before? Well, you did. You're just learning it again. And what happens with us as we follow Jesus, more and more times we begin to find the things that we really need to work on because they're patterns that keep repeating themselves. Why? Because we don't learn the lesson and we don't remember what it was that we learned. I told you this before, and I, I, I'm briefly just going to remind you of this. One of the most powerful moments I had playing basketball uh, as far as learning process was one time when our coach came in and uh, we played a horrible game, lost the game by just a few points from a team that we probably should have beat by 30. And he comes in, of course, he's very frustrated. If you knew my coach back then, he's a yeller. He loves to yell at people. Not he was yeller, like color, but yeller, like he yells at people. But he would come in and just, I mean, he would yell and he would stomp his feet and he would throw the clipboard down and he would point at you and he'd grit his teeth. And that was kind of the way he coached. But this time he came at the end, we were all fully expecting. I mean, he's going to come in, he's going to chew us out. We were all prepared. And he walked in and he just kind of had this look on his face, like disappointment. And he didn't say anything. And he just kind of looked at a moment and he kind of stopped and looked at each one of us and he said, are y'all proud of the way you play today? kind of put your head down. You don't really answer. He said, um, you, and he pointed at me first. He's like, Jack, um, did you learn anything out there at all? I was like, yes, sir. Tell me what you learned. And I said something. And he looked at a couple other people. He said, did you learn anything while you're out there? Did you learn anything from your defeat? Yes. What? I learned we got to play as a team. I learned we got to take better shots. I learned we got to, you know, put more effort in whatever it was. And we kind of said all these things. He walked around for a moment. He just kept walking back and forth looking. He said, you know what? It's good that you learn from that because that's probably the only good that's going to come out of it. 
He said, but I want to remind you guys of something. This is something you need to remember the rest of your life. It's not what you learn today that matters. It's what you remember tomorrow. And he turned around and he walked out. And that was it. And that was probably the most impactful, like, end of the game. Because I've remembered that the rest of my life. It's not what you learn today that matters. It's what you remember tomorrow. What was his point? It was like, you can go through this experience and you can learn things that you should work on. But if you don't take that the next day at practice, if you don't remember that the next game that you play, if you don't remember that the next moment in life where it can be applied, then you don't have any value in that. So remembering is building on the experiences of our life. It's reminding ourselves of where we've been and where we're going. It's Reminding us to live life with some kind of intentionality. I mean, why do you have a family? Why do you live in this city? Why do you do the things that you do? Something led up to that, and there had to be a purpose behind it. But do you remember where you were? Do you remember where you came from? Do you remember where you were going? Or do you find yourself in your marriage, in your parenting, in your job, just kind of like floating around? There's no intentionality. There's no purpose. You don't feel like you're going anywhere, and you don't really remember where you even came from. It's just kind of like you exist today, and you're in this rat wheel where you're just running, 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 but it doesn't seem like anything's going anywhere. That's not living life with intentionality. And when you learn from your experiences, it really puts you on a trajectory of moving in a direction, moving towards something. And I think that this is really what God is hitting at by instilling in the people before they even leave Egypt, this is something that I want you to do. Because it's easy for us to forget God's goodness. It's easy for us to forget that he's gracious, that he's faithful, that he's our provider, and that he's been very good at it over and over again. What happens is, instead of remembering those things, we tend to only focus on whatever our current circumstances are and we're convinced that these current circumstances are sure to undo him this time. I mean, he may have batted a thousand up to this point, but this, he's not going to be able to be faithful. He's not going to be able to be consistent. He's not going to be able to help me in this. Or even worse, in the times of goodness, in the times of plenty, in the times of peace that we have, we completely forget him altogether. Have you ever been there in either one of those circumstances? If so, just know that you're not alone. We all have been there in one way or another. We've all walked those paths. And that's why you're going to be able to completely relate to what God is sharing with his people here in this passage today. Let's jump into this. And what I'm going to do is look at chapter 12, what Brad read. But I'm also going to incorporate chapter 13, verses 3 through 10. Now, you're saying, how in the world are we going to go through all of that? It's going to be a little bit different today because we're going to read through it. I'm going to give you kind of some insight as we read through it. But then I'm just going to talk generally about the passage because it all kind of centers around this one idea. And the reason we're going to also incorporate 13 into it is because when you get to chapter 13, he basically repeats the same thing. Why is there repetition? Repetition is so that you can learn things. How do we most easily learn things? Through repetition. So when you th see things repeated in scripture over and over again, it's probably because these are the things that you need to learn the most. Why do you think God says, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not? Because it's our tendency to fear, to fear, to fear, to fear. So the more you see something kind of put out there in Scripture, it's because it's our human tendency to not be that. Okay? So when you see that repetition, that's something to pay attention to. And I'm going to show you how we see it in both of these chapters here. Let's begin in verse 14 of chapter 12. This day, this day that 
we're about to celebrate, this day that you share this meal, this Passover day, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So he tells them right there, this is not just a one-time thing. You're not going to share this meal just in preparation of what I'm going to do. I want you to pay attention to what you're doing because you're going to do this again next year when you're not in Egypt. You're going to do this later on in the year after that. And you're going to do this for many years. And then you're going to teach your kids how to do this. Grow up, they're going to grow up in a household that does this every year. And then they're going to go and teach their kids the same thing. And this is going to become a memorial for you year after year after year in perpetuity. Look at verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now again, I want you to pay attention to how we see these themes that go about the seven days jumps out at you, or it should anyway. You're reminded seven days. Oh yes, seven days. That's the way God created the world. What happened on the seventh day? God rested. What did he call that? He called it a Sabbath. Notice in this passage that Passover is called a Sabbath. Also notice that it is the 14th day of the month that it starts. Now, let me just show you that that is actually a Sabbath day. The reason we know that is because Israel, this time, and really even Egypt, they used a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar like we have today. So the lunar calendar starts like this. You observe the sky, and when you see the new moon, and you confirm that the new moon has shown itself with that first little sliver, then you say this is the beginning of the month. Okay, And then God says, when you see that, count for yourselves seven days, and that seventh day will be a Sabbath, and every seventh day after that will be a Sabbath. So once you see the new moon, count seven days, that's seven days of Sabbath, 14th days of Sabbath, 21st day is a Sabbath, 28th day is a Sabbath. Okay, So that's your Sabbaths for the month. Well, God says here on the 14th day, so we know that Passover both begins and ends on a Sabbath. You begin with this, seven days, and then you have another feast, another Sabbath. Okay, so there's that picture right there, Sabbath to Sabbath. Now, again, it goes back to the picture of creation, and that's an important one for us to remember. When you look at the creation story, you remember that God created in seven days. The first thing he did was he removed or separated light from darkness, okay? So he said, let there be light, and light is introduced into this, and he separates light from darkness. Notice here there is a separation that is beginning. He is pulling them away from Egypt, which is the picture of darkness. What was the last plague they had before the um, Passover? It was darkness on on the land of Egypt, not on the land of Goshen. God is beginning to pull his people out. So I say that to say that as we looked through all the plagues of Egypt, what we pointed out is oftentimes there is this allusion back to the creation story. And whenever you see God's wrath being poured out, what you see is decreation happening. So you see things instead of going from chaos to order, you see them going the other way, from order to chaos. When you see things going from death to life, that's creation. When you see things going from life to death, that's decreation. Uh, light and darkness. All those themes that we pointed out there, we see them very consistently. But let me point this part out because this is probably just as important for us to see. That after God pours out his wrath, when you do see the decreation, you will immediately see recreation. And so after God has poured out his wrath on Egypt and everything has descended into chaos and disorder, God is now beginning 
to pull out. He is beginning to recreate, and he's beginning to order things again. And so what you find is this beginning and this ending. In other words, the the seven days. And so there's this picture. Passover is what delivers us. It separates us from Egypt. And then unleavened bread is that process that begins throughout the rest of the week of us not just separating from Egypt, but really beginning to change who we are. Look how it continues in verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So it is literally this moving away of leaven out of your house. Uh, Jewish families, when they celebrate Passover, the first thing they do before they celebrate the Passover meal is they get rid of all the leaven in your house. Can you imagine how much money you would lose if you went home and did that today? I mean, that's all the Twinkies, the ho-hos, all your bread, the bunny bread, all those things that you have in there that have all those carbs in it, those are probably full of yeast, and you would have to throw all of that stuff away till that was all gone, okay? You have to clean your house of leaven 100% before you even begin with the Passover meal. Uh, It's so intentional that if you don't do this, you are cut off from the covenant people. You're not a part of them. That's pretty serious. Look how it continues in verse 16. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. So there's this focus in unleavened bread. Verse 17, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day, I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations a statute forever. So he reminds them that it was Passover that delivered the blow, the final blow to Egypt. And now unleavened bread is the process of beginning to separate them from Egypt. So keep that picture in your mind. Verse 18, in the first month from the 14th day, again, a Passover day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day, again, a Sabbath day, uh, until that evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that per congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. So again, he reiterates how important this is. If you have leaven in your house, you are cut off from the covenant people. Verse 20, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Do you hear the repetition in that? Just in those verses that we read, you hear this repetition over and over again. Matter of fact, you'll find in this passage three times he tells them, this is a statute for you forever. You got to keep doing this over and over again every year. You find it in several of those verses here uh, going through this passage. Now, the reason that we have that repetition and the reason God gives them these feasts to celebrate is because many of us suffer from spiritual amnesia. Why? Well, we do because we need to learn those same lessons over and over and over again, don't we? Now, just because you go through a difficult time and you make it through it doesn't mean you actually learn the lesson. So God may allow those same circumstances again to come to you until we learn those lessons. Why? Is it God visiting 
pain and suffering on us? No, that's not it at all. And if you see it for those kinds of circumstances, you're going to get bogged down in those circumstances. But if you understand it for what God is doing, he's trying to put life inside of you. He's trying to redirect you. He's trying to help you understand to look bigger and beyond those circumstances, to find where your help comes from, to understand who he is, who you are, what he can do for you. All of those reasons are why God allows us to walk through times of difficulty and why he often will allow us to walk through them multiple times. Why? Because we haven't learned those lessons yet. So we have to somehow reverse this idea of amnesia. But the reversal of amnesia doesn't happen without something that's acting against it, which is why this passage right here is, is so amazing where we find it. Before they've even left Egypt, God is telling them, I want you to remember this event for the rest of your life. And to make sure that you remember it, I want to make sure that every year you relive it. I want you to remind yourself of how I delivered you. I want you to remind yourself of how you walked out. I want you to remind yourself of how you were provided for, how you escaped death, how I fought your battles for you. I want you every year to be reminded this is who I am. So before they've even left Egypt, he's saying, after I deliver you tonight, I want to make sure you remember this year after year. So it won't be long before their minds are going to become clouded. And when the mind becomes clouded, that's the same thing as forgetfulness. We forget God's faithfulness. We forget what he's done. And when that cloudy forgetfulness sets in, that's when our hearts become calloused. And when our hearts become calloused, that's when our souls become rebellious. That's why remembering is so important. It stops that process. What happens is the further we get away from Egypt and the more we get into the wilderness, our hearts begin to go back to their old ways. And if there's not something to stop that process, we will eventually go back into full-on rebellion. We will go back to the same hard-heartedness that we found was a characteristic of Pharaoh. What can stop that? Apparently, remembering. If you remember what God has done, if you remember what he said, if you remember what he said about you, then you can fight off those effects of your heart going back to Egypt. There was a rabbi one time who said this, and he was talking about the Passover and the importance of Passover and sharing the story year after year. And he said this, he said, he said, if we forget to remember, we are doomed to return to slavery. Think about that for a moment. If we forget to remember, we are doomed to return to slavery. And you know what? That's so true for them, but it's so true for us too. We are doomed to return to slavery if we forget what God's done for us. We will go back to the same ways. We will go back to the same defeating kind of lifestyle and thought processes, the same rat race that we were in before God delivering us. If we fail to remember God's goodness, God's intentionality, remember, he wasn't just saving them from Egypt. He said, I want you to let my people go so that they may serve me and worship me. And that serving and that worship is where intentionality comes and God gives us purpose and meaning and identity. That's where we find who we really are and what we were created for. And that's what keeps us walking the path that God intended for us. Look at how often scripture points to this idea of remembering. 
Nehemiah 4.14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I mean, think about this for a moment. There's a battle on the horizon. There is the enemy. And what does he say? Before he ever tells them to fight or do anything, he says, remember who God is. He's the deliverer. He's the fighter. He's the one who is strong on our behalf. Remember who he is and what you're really fighting for. Ecclesiastes 12.1, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. He reminds them, remember the things you learned as a child. Remember the things your parents talked to you about. Remember the things that you learned at church or at BBS or wherever it may be that you learned those things. Remember those truths because there is a day coming when those truths will be challenged. And if you don't stand firm on those truths, you will be knocked on your face. Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Remember what I've always done and you'll know who I am today. 2 Timothy 2, 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel. Paul says, I want you to remember who Jesus is, the fulfillment of all those promises. Remember who he was, who he, how he lived, how he instructed us, and what he told us about the future. Remember the gospel that I've preached to you. Remember, remember, remember. Deuteronomy 5.15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So think about what he's saying there. Remember who God was and how he fought for you. How do you remember that? Keep the Sabbath day. What is the Sabbath day about? Rest. So somehow this author is saying, As you come to the difficulty in your life, as you come to these obstacles that seem insurmountable, as you come to these circumstances that you just think of them as overwhelming and there's no way I'm going to get past this, you know what your part is in defeating it or getting past it? Resting. Why? Because you rest in who God is. You rest in his faithfulness. You rest in his promises. Well, how do I do that? You remember. What did Israel do to defeat Egypt? They ate, had a feast. Um, They plundered the Egyptians. How? With swords? And they go and just beat them into submission? No, they went and said, "Um, do you have any gold or silver you'd like to give me? (laughs) Yes, here, take it. I mean, think about that for a moment. That's how they defeated their enemy. When you find yourself in overwhelming circumstances, remember who God is and rest in him. And watch him fight your battles. Now, I'm not not advocating uh, laziness. I'm advocating active remembering. It's hard to remember. It's hard. Matter of fact, the rest that's spoken about here, the writer of Hebrews picks up on it in chapter 3 and chapter 4, and he says, let us strive to enter into that rest. Why? Because he knows how our hearts are. Our hearts don't like to just sit and just depend on God. And so it's literally like this work, a striving to rest. It's like an oxymoron that he creates, but it's so true. And you know it's true because you've experienced it. It is hard to just rest and trust God. Psalm 105.5. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, 
the judgments that he uttered. And there's more, and you probably have some in your mind that I haven't even talked about here. But I just want to show you those because it's New Testament. It's in the wisdom literature. It's in the Torah. It's in the prophets over and over and over again. Remember, 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 remember. This is why God, before they even leave Egypt, gives them two celebrations as markers in their journey that they are to remember. Now, before it's all over, he's going to give them seven in all. You get to Leviticus chapter 23, the seven feasts of the Lord, and they are not only markers for them of things they're to do, it points to their past history. It points to what God has done with them. It points to their future and all of them are messianic in nature. They point to Jesus and the fulfillment of all of these things. But here he starts with Passover and he tells them, this is going to be the beginning of months for you. And immediately following Passover is the feast of unleavened bread. And this is a celebration that's so important that, like I said earlier, he repeats it three times that you are to observe this year after year after year forever. He says it in verse 14, verse 17, and then you see it again in verse 24. Now, not only were there three times that he repeats to them, remember, 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 do this forever, do this forever, do this forever. But what's amazing is when you look at where they did it, there's also three locations. The first Passover they ever celebrated was in Egypt. The next 40 were in the wilderness. And then from that point on, it was in the promised land. And you could even go further than that when they were in exile. They still celebrated the Passover from years to years. This is a tradition that is carried on no matter where they are. But I want you to think about those three pictures there. They celebrated it in Egypt, they celebrated it in the wilderness, and they celebrated it in the promised land. Now, why is that important? Well, I don't know uh, exactly if, if this is the best way of looking at it, but I do find it interesting that God has them celebrate Passover before they've actually even been delivered. They celebrate it in their captivity. And then they celebrate it in the wilderness before they've ever really taken hold of the promises of God, they celebrate it again and again and again. And then once they get into the new land and the promised land, Joshua, one of the first things we see in the book of Joshua is they celebrate Passover. Now, why would they celebrate there? They've made it. They're in the promised land. I know you never forget to remember. If you forget to remember, you will waste away the blessings of God. If you forget to remember, you will forget what your purpose is and, and what your destiny is and what your life, the trajectory of your life should be taking. You'll forget who you are. You'll forget who he is. So it doesn't matter if you're in the promised land or if you're in slavery. It's the same thing. Remember, remember, remember who God is. Unleavened bread and Passover also speak to something that's very crucial for us to understand. And that truth is that Passover always leads to unleavened bread. Okay. Remember, what is Passover? Where the Passover lamb becomes the substitute for Israel. Um, think about this for a moment. When God's wrath is poured out on Egypt, don't miss this, his wrath is also poured out on Israel. I want you to notice that the same thing that's demanded of Egypt is demanded of Israel. The only difference is he provided for a substitute. There was still a death for every home in Israel, just like there was a death in every home in Egypt. But when the death angel came to the houses there in Goshen where Israel was staying, the death angel saw blood on the door and said, 
something's already died here and passed over. There was a substitute, and the blood was a reminder that something died for this family. That's the way God delivered them. It was through a substitute. But after he delivers them, they immediately go into this feast of unleavened bread. And this is about the hastiness of when they leave. When I deliver you, if Pharaoh's going to let you go, you go. You get out of Egypt. I'm taking you out of Egypt. Okay, so think about this. God freed them, and then he begins to sanctify them. He frees them from their slavery and bondage, and then he begins to sanctify them. Okay, now I want you to see it this way too. He brought them out of Egypt, which then began the process of bringing Egypt out of them. Do you see this? He frees them from where they are, and then he frees them from where they've been, what it's done to them. And all of their attitudes and their ideas of worship and their ideas of power and their ideas of authority and their ideas, all of these things, God begins the process of removing Egypt from them because they've been there so long that that's all they know. They know their gods. They, they know their beliefs. They know their whole education system. And God is beginning to do a new thing. He already told that from them. So he rescues them out of Egypt. Because let's be honest, if you're staying in Egypt, you're never going to get out of Egypt. You're always going to be inundated with Egypt. So he takes them out of Egypt, but then he begins the process in the wilderness of taking Egypt out of them. And that's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is all about. It's remembering. Both of these are remembering. Passover, remember how you are saved. Unleavened Bread, remember what you are saved for. So Passover is remember how you were saved. What did you do? Nothing. You were just obedient to what God called you to do. Did you pick up a sword? Did you fight anybody? No, God fought all my battles. Did, did you have to bleed some blood? Did you have to pay for your sins? No, a substitute was provided for that. That's how God delivered you, with an outstretched arm, delivering a blow to your enemies. He rescued you. Remember, remember what he did. Remember his faithfulness. Remember his power. Remember that demonstration of his love. And then remember that it wasn't just to get you out of Egypt, but there was a purpose in your redemption. There was a purpose in you coming out. The purpose is for you to become more like him. And for you to become more like him, you have to get Egypt out and you have to put God in. Now, unleavened bread is a picture of being delivered from the practice, or we could even say the personal presence of sin. Just like Passover is a picture of being delivered from the penalty of sin, unleavened bread is delivery from the practice of sin. So God delivers you from the penalty of sin. How? What is the penalty of sin? Death. He provides a substitute. He delivers you from that penalty. But then what is unleavened bread about? It's about delivering you from that presence of sin or that practice of sin in your life. So slowly he begins to pull Egypt out of you. And how does he do this? How does this whole thing start? It starts with this idea of Passover and this blood sacrifice. Now go ahead to that next picture. I want to show you two pictures, both of them you're familiar with. The first one obviously is Passover and the second one is the cross. Now I just want to kind of give you a visual to help you always pay attention to details. Now let me just say up front, I have no idea if this was actually intended 
um, by God or by Moses when he writes this or this, this action. But let me just point out something that I find fascinating. And that is, if you look at the door, God specifically told them to put the blood on both the sides and on the top of the door. He says that very specifically, both the side panels of the door and across the top. Now, the other thing that you don't really see pictured here is before he says for them to put the hyssop in there and to apply the blood to all sections of that door, he tells them to dig a trench at the, at the front of their house and when they kill the Passover lamb to drain the blood into that trench. And to, that's where they would get the blood from to apply it to the door. So you know that the trench has to be very close to the door. Here's another thing that's pretty uh, insightful. The word labeled trench is actually the word threshold. So it could very easily be like dig a, a, a ditch at the threshold of your door. So if that is the case, now again, I'm making a little bit of an assumption, making some connections there, but let me just paint this picture. Follow me on this. If let's say that makes sense, that they kill the lamb there, they drain the blood, the blood flows into a trough that they've dug at the threshold of the door, that would mean literally that the blood is on the bottom, the sides, and the top. So literally to walk into the house or out of the house, you have to walk through blood, almost a circle of blood. Now, um, God tells them specifically last week that when they go into the house after they've covered it with blood to not come back out again. Don't leave the house again. You stay inside the house. And that's when the death angel is going to come over. The reason I think that this is interesting is if you look at the cross and you think about Jesus's crucifixion and how he was wounded, um, he was wounded on his head. His hands were nailed to the cross and his feet were nailed to the cross as well. So you have a picture of blood on both sides, blood on the top, and blood at the bottom. Now, I don't know if that was uh, completely intended or not, but I do find it fascinating that you see these similarities of pictures here, which is why I always tell you to pay attention to the details and see what, what is this prefiguring? What is this pointing towards? Because God is telling us something that is coming in our redemption. And I think this is pointing towards the cross, obviously, because Jesus becomes the Passover lamb. John declares that. And we see how even the apostle John writes the whole gospel that he writes uh, based on on Passover. This is a powerful, powerful picture. Passover always leads to unleavened bread. Look how he repeats this in chapter 13, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. We see both of those there. God delivers you. Don't eat, uh, don't eat leavened bread. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. So even when you get there, you're still going to remember this and you're going to participate in this. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread and on the seventh day you shall be, uh, shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leaven shall be found in your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So they're passing this story on even when they're in the promised land. And it shall be to you as a sign in your hand and as your memorial between your eyes that the law of 
the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as is appointed to you at this time from year to year. So again, notice those allusions back to creation, the seven days and the Sabbath. Uh, Look very specifically at verse 7. There is a dual command that we find in verse 7 that I think is important for us to see. I think we understand that unleavened bread is all about don't eat bread with leaven. But if you only stop there, you've missed what unleavened bread is about. It's not just about what you're not eating. It's just as much about what you are eating. There are two commands. The command number one is do not eat things with leaven. Command number two is eat things that are not leaven. Because it's not all about what you're not doing. It's also about what you are doing. Um, you know, as a pastor, you do a lot of marriage counseling. Sometimes you feel unfit for that, but you, you do it nonetheless. And I remember when we were still in the other building over there, a gentleman who came um, because his marriage had fallen apart. Um, he found out that his wife was cheating on him and um, everything was just, he was devastated. Everything was falling apart. And I mean, in tears and in anger, he kind of recounted some of the things that he had learned and how it had felt for him and how it hurt him. And I remember he looked at me with like just shaking both in anger and in frustration and in sorrow. And he said, I don't understand this. I didn't do anything wrong. I I didn't cheat on her. I I never spent too much time at work. I didn't spend money that we didn't have. I didn't hoard those things. I didn't go out and do a whole bunch of things. I spent time there. I was a good dad. I was a good husband. I, I don't understand what went wrong. And through a course of conversation, I basically asked him this question. I said, you told me that you didn't do anything wrong, but let me just throw a question back at you for reflection. Did you do anything right? And he said, what do you mean? It's like, were you intentional about you know, taking flowers home on days that weren't occasions? Were you intentional about giving her a call or telling her how she looked or reminding her of what you were attracted to in the beginning. Did you do any of those type of things? And you're just there, sitting there weeping. He was like, no, I really didn't do those things. And through our conversation, we kind of came to that same conclusion that I'm presenting to you. Your whole marriage can fall apart without you ever doing anything wrong. It'll fall apart if you don't do something right. And following Jesus is the same way. Following Jesus isn't just about getting rid of sin It's also about putting in the goodness and obedience of following Christ. It's not just about what you don't do. It's just as much about what you're doing. See, to be delivered from Egypt is one thing, but to walk in that deliverance is another. The path from Passover to Passover to Passover the path that we find instituted for us in this passage and really even on throughout the rest of the law of Moses, it's very easy to think of it as repetitive. You know, every year we go through the same motions. We do the Passover meal. We walk in here. We dip the parsley. We eat it. We walk through. We tell the story. If it's repetitive, you have failed to remember Because Passover is not repetitive, but it is cyclical. 
And the difference in something being repetitive and something being cyclical, the best way I can explain it is, have you ever been in like one of those libraries or one of those like mansion type places where they have the spiral staircases? So think about that for a moment. If you walk up that spiral staircase, do you keep coming back to the same place over and over again? Kind of. I mean, you do come back to, you know, the north side of the stairwell, but at the same time, you're not in the same places when you were there last time. You are a little bit higher up. And then when you come back around, you're a little bit higher up. And when you come back around, it's kind of like a DNA strand. You've seen that, that double helix. It's kind of like that. I believe that that is what the feasts are intended to be. They are cyclical. You come back to Passover after Passover after Passover. But here's the thing. You have experienced so much between this Passover and this Passover that when you get to this one, you're not in the same place where you are in this one. And so something hits you completely different. You see some other aspect of who God is or something about who you are. You see something about the tragedies that you've walked through or maybe the triumphs that you've walked through. You've learned these lessons. But these are like waypoints in your journey to keep reminding you to reflect on what God is doing and that he's taking you somewhere and that he has these promises that he's going to be faithful to. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep walking. There's another Passover just down the road. It's almost like God gives us Sabbath day to undo what the other six days did to us. For six days you shall work. On the Sabbath day you shall not work and and you shall let it be holy and no work shall be done. Why? Because for six days all you can think of is that your value comes from what you produce. I'm good. I've made money. I've been successful or I haven't been successful or I haven't done this or I've been a great student. I'm the head of my class or I'm failing this class. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And so for those six days, you begin to see your identity and what you're producing. And God says, you need to take a day a week to forget that trash because your value doesn't come from what you produce. Your value comes from who you are in me. You are loved, greatly loved. You have been redeemed. You have been adopted into my family. Don't you let Egypt tell you who you are. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. This is a passage we refer to a lot in our family discipleship, and it's important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's great to say that, and we all want that, but how does that actually happen? These words that I've commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You remember that? That was actually from our passage in Exodus. It gets reiterated in Deuteronomy in the responsibility of the parents. You shall write them on doorposts of your houses and on your gates. What is he saying? He's saying, as you live life, as you go on your way, because you don't understand how your depravity will call you to forget. Forget God. Forget what he's done. Forget where you've been. Forget where you're going. All you need to focus on is what kind of pleasure you can find right here, right now. This is where you are. Why not live it up right here? You fail to remember. This is about reminding ourselves as we leave our houses, as we come in, as we lie, there are things bigger than just life that we're living for. We started talking about spiritual amnesia, but there is another side of the coin, 
and that is the word anemnesis. It's another Greek word, just like amnesia, and they're actually closely related. The difference is anemnesis is memory. It's a recall of facts. Amnesia is the forgetting of facts. Anemnesis is the recalling of facts. But there is a nuance to anemnesis that's very important for us. It means memory, but not just a recall of factual information. Anemnesis means to remember the past in such a way that it empowers your present. That's what anemnesis means to remember the past in such a way that it empowers your present. Not just inspires, empowers. Anemnesis is the opposite of amnesia. Our enemy would love for us to have spiritual amnesia, but God calls us to have spiritual anemnesis, to remember the past so it can empower your present. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember how he walked you through those difficult times. Remember the promises that he whispered in your ear. Remember how he held you as you walked through that dark valley in your life. Remember that. And when you remember it, it will empower you in the present to keep looking to the future. That's what we are called to remember. My question to you is this. Are you walking in the freedom of Passover today? Have you been truly set free? Second question to that is, are you walking in the freedom of unleavened bread, of realizing that your identity no longer belongs in Egypt or is identified with anything in Egypt, but it's identified by a completely different value system? Are you truly walking in the freedom that Passover and unleavened bread represent for you? I want to remind you of something that Jesus did before he ever went to the cross, he looked to his disciples and said, I want you to go prepare this meal, and I have looked forward to sharing this meal with you ever since I've met you guys. And they prepared what kind of meal? Passover. And what did Jesus do in that Passover meal? He celebrated something that had been celebrated for thousands of years, but I want you to notice some similarities. They celebrated Passover before they were delivered from Egypt. Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples before they were delivered from their sin. And in that celebration, he brought significance to two aspects of Passover. It's when he got to the Ophicomen and the breaking of the bread, and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat it. And then he gets to the third cup of wine, the cup of redemption, and he says, this represents my blood, my blood which is spilled for you. Take it and drink it. And the next thing he says is what? And as often as you do this, remember me. Remember what I did. Remember what I suffered. Remember what I went through. Remember what I paid. Remember the sacrifice. Why? Because if you don't, you could end up thinking you're worthless. You could end up thinking your life doesn't matter. You could end up thinking that you're invaluable. But how could you ever look at the cross and see what God was willing to pay for your salvation and think that there was anything in your life that isn't beautiful and valuable because of God's redemption? If you fail to remember, you're doomed to return to your slavery. And what a sad place that would be for us to have freedom in front of us while we intentionally chain ourselves to this world. 
Let's pray. God, thank you for a word that reminds us of your truth, your goodness, your gospel. Lord, as early as the second book in the Bible, we already have the prefiguration of the cross and your ultimate plan to redeem us. Lord, in the Passover meal and the Passover experience, we have a perfect picture of your grace and your wrath, your justice and your mercy. Lord, it reminds us that you will deal with sin and you will deal completely and harshly with sin. But in your grace, you have offered us a reprieve to accept a substitute. And that substitute was your son who was butchered on Calvary's cross so that we may experience life and be delivered from our enemy, so that we move from darkness to light, from death to life, so that we have the promise of resurrection. Lord, there's so much truth, so much value, so much intentionality in this. Holy Spirit, I just pray that in this room right now that you would move over the hearts and lives that are here, convict those that need to be convicted, encourage those who need that encouragement. But Lord, let the truth of your word resonate with us and let it do its healing, redemptive work. May we understand where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. And thank you, Lord, that the truth in the heart of all of this is truly Sabbath rest, resting in your promises, resting in your goodness, resting in your grace.